Hey everyone, welcome to episode 345 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week I welcome back UK-based photographer Alex Nail. Alex is no stranger to the podcast, having first appeared in January of 2018. I've always been a huge fan of his mountain photography, and we've become good friends over the years, having been introduced here on this very podcast. Alex also helped me formulate my strong opinions on certain styles of photographic editing, which I've been no stranger in sharing here on the podcast, thanks to his appearance in one of the podcast's most epic episodes, episode 71. I'll put a link to those episodes in the show notes for you to reference. Alex is one of the hardest working landscape photographers that I've ever met, and his passion comes through this week in this episode. We discuss a lot of subjects along the way, but we focus a ton of our time on the trials and tribulations of his newest book, The Great Wilderness. This week's episode is brought to you by Nature Photographers Network. NPN is still my favorite hangout for nature photography. It is a community of like-minded photographers ranging in experience level from beginner all the way to full-time professional. It is a very inviting and welcoming place for photographers of all levels. My personal favorite aspect of NPN is looking at all of the great photography that is submitted there and learning from everyone's honest and thoughtful critiques of images. Even if you don't submit your own work for critique, you can gain valuable insight by reading those critiques. For just $49 per year, you can join the community on NPN and gain access to the critique forums, as well as many other incredible benefits, including fantastic articles, webinars, discounted tutorials, software, books, and a lot more. It's a great place and we'd love to see you there. Just head over to npn.link forward slash f-stop to join in. Use the code f-stop10 for a 10% discount. That's npn.link forward slash f-stop. All right, let's get to this week's episode with Alex Nail. Alex Nail, welcome back to your fourth podcast episode. Thank you. I'm feeling uh, very experienced. I'm sure by the end of this, you'll you'll have even more experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, I had to I had to laugh because uh, when you reached out to me to do this podcast, you referred to yourself as a photographer working in the eyewitness tradition who infamously dragged one certain podcast host away from the perils of post-processing, which I thought was hilarious. What what were you referring to there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah, that... that uh podcast with Erin was obviously a, a moment for you anyway that you've referred to a few times in your podcast so I guess I was just poking fun at you a bit there Matt. I'm, <laughs> no, it's fair I'm glad not. to have been part of that process. It was a very classic episode I think it's the most downloaded episode of the podcast so we'll put it in the show notes. So first for people who haven't heard of you before and or who you are tell us a little bit about who Alex Nail is. Well I'm uh, I call myself a mountain photographer actually rather than a, a landscape photographer just because that's such a you know, my work's so heavily biased towards mountain photography now. And I've been a professional for, I think, coming up towards nine years now, eight, eight years anyway, and uh, just try to get to remote places and put in the hard work to produce images of places that are maybe less well known to people. Um, 
and try to do that as as honestly as I can I guess I guess that's a big part of what I do but I like to work in quite a, a thorough way as well so I will revisit the same areas and try to build portfolios as opposed to sort of globe trotting so to speak yeah and I, and I guess I've also uh, established a small name for myself with this whole reality and photography thing which has landed me in trouble over the years but I don't don't really regret I suppose maybe on the right side of history who knows yeah, we'll get uh, into yeah, that. So that's me. Yeah, and, and you've got uh, you got a baby on the way. Yes, thank you for announcing that on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, at the at the end of October. Um, so yeah, every everything's going to change then, I'm sure. But uh, I'm I'm hoping we can we can work around that. In some ways, um, I'm when I'm at home, I'm at home. Uh, so that could actually work work quite well. But. Yeah, I don't know. You've got to got to do these things and see how they work out. Sometimes I think rather than just worry about every uh, last detail. I think that's the way to do it, right there. All right. Well, let's let's jump back. Um, you had talked about that episode of the podcast, which literally every single person I've talked to, like, I'm like, oh, have you ever listened to this podcast before? And they're like, I've listened to the Alex Nail and Aaron Bobnick episode. Like everyone, I feel like has listened to that one. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. And I'm curious, from your perspective, having played such a pivotal role in that particular episode, looking back on it, do you think if in any way has that particular podcast episode had an impact on the landscape photography community from your perspective? I mean, I don't, I don't know. You probably have a better view of that than me, actually, Matt, because... Uh I mean, in, in the UK, there's more people like me than there are people who, who would edit more, more freely, let's put it that way. Um, I, I think that those kind of conversations are, are important to have. And I think that conversation was one of many that have happened and, and articles have been written and so on that have, have contributed to where we are now, which I think is actually in a, in a better place. I think to a certain degree, I can quieten down a little bit because I think people have heard those views now. Um, mm. They're pretty well fleshed out and understood. And people are making their choices from a very informed position in most cases, which I think is the most we can realistically hope for. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like to think of that conversation as being, being part of, you know, a solution and answer for some people but uh only only a part of it really and and actually maybe just on the start of a wave that was already building towards uh people pursuing photography in a more realistic manner hmm. yeah i think that makes sense uh from my perspective i think that it definitely helped open up a conversation and it's given people a mechanism through which they can at least think about and or kind of look in the mirror a little bit to decide kind of what kind of photographer they want to be. And I think, like you said, that's probably the best we can hope for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'd actually quite like to listen to that back. I haven't, haven't heard it really since we, since you put it out um, to see how my views might've changed and whether I might be less adversarial. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to actually dive into that right right now. So I know I know we're going to dive into your book for sure, but I had a few other fun little topics I wanted to, to talk about before we got there. Um, so for people that have been around for the last 15 years, I would say you're probably um, one of the most 
recognized as probably one of the most opinionated photographers that, that I've ever met. Um, but what a question this is. But, 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 but <laughs> I will say that it's, it's also one of the things that I admire most about you that, you know, you kind of stick to your guns and you don't tend to back down from your position. I'm curious, what has it been like from your point of view, being one of the more opinionated personalities dating back to sites like DeviantArt and 500px? In some ways, I don't know how to answer that because it might not surprise you to know that that extends to every part of my life and all of my relationships, not just photography. So it's something that I have, cho I suppose I've chosen to be the way that I am to, to a large extent. Uh, so it's caused, it caused arguments sometimes with my wife actually early on until she kind of understood where I was coming from and how it was important to me to be authentic um, you know, in my opinions and, and in who I was. And so, you know, I, I actively chose to do that knowing that it was to the detriment of certain relationships, but to the advantage of others. Um, and, you know, so I find with my friendships, for example, that um, I can have deeper, richer friendships with the people who do get on with me and, and do know that what I say comes from the right place and that I mess up all the time and that I don't always mean what I say um, but you know that that's the same in, in photography really I, I think people who can take my views with a pinch of salt to a degree um, but also hold their own with their own convictions uh, won't really have an issue with me whereas people who want to mischaracterize me and say that I you know I'm just a hateful guy and all you know I mean all that kind of stuff goes around I actually saw um, a whatsapp group one, one of my um, friends who I was running a workshop with at the time showed me a whatsapp group of um, it was a group of mostly American photographers and, and some Europeans some very famous names in there and and they were talking about me and it was something along the lines of oh that Alex Snell he's only um, going on about reality and photography because he wants to get the you know the headlines and he's just being negative to draw attention to himself and you know I just thought oh you know what what can you do um, yeah so I I've always known that it would upset some people um, but I think that people having opinions is very important I'm not sure that it's always best to do it the way that I do it but it's the way that I've chosen and I greatly value people who have similarly strident opinions to mine, I have to say, because I can take them with a pinch of salt. Uh, and there are a few people who, you know, whose opinions I really admire and, and regularly seek out because they are um, pretty much unlimited in what they're willing to say. Hmm. Yeah, I've had very similar experiences myself. I've had a lot of people, you know, call me names or whatever, like... I had this one guy create a whole series of Instagram stories to his like 100,000 followers that was basically all about how much he hated me. Um, yeah. And, but what can you do? The right? thing is, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not sure really that that's even a reflection on the people making those comments. It's just the nature of having, you know, distant remote relationships through the internet. It's a pretty ineffective way of understanding who people are, even if you understand what they're saying. I agree. Well, on the flip side of that, I'm I'm really curious because I know we've talked a little bit about this offline, but uh, how have you 
temperature views and or approaches to discussing them publicly uh, over the last maybe five or six years? I think I ground myself down to a degree. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, the answer is that I am very strong on subjects that I feel strongly about. And if I feel that there's less of an issue, I won't be as vocal. And I think that's one of the reasons that to a large extent, I've been able to walk away from this post-processing debate is, you know, I've seen so many people move in what I consider to be the right direction that, that I don't feel the need to, to to strike out and say, oh, you know, this isn't acceptable. Who who do you think you are? Not that I ever did that, but maybe I should have. <laughs> and I still I still say things. Um, uh, who was I messaging the other day? Well, I probably shouldn't say the name, but um, there's a photographer who was, uh, you know, he shared a, a reel of some of the editing he was doing to his images. He was removing some distractions from the edge of his frame. And I was saying to, saying to him just out of nowhere, completely unasked for opinion you know why are you doing this why are you removing these corrections because what uh the, these flaws because one of the things that i've come to realize recently is that we as photographers teach ourselves to look for these flaws which means that things that weren't flaws before have become flaws now and then as you remove them you set a higher and higher standard of perfection so yeah i mean i i latch onto these ideas sometimes and then when i see uh something that, that illustrates that idea i might i might bring it up um but in general i am a little bit more patient and and tempered with my opinions and uh yes a little quieter maybe <laughs> Yeah, I would say. I mean, from my perspective, you're much quieter than you used to be. I mean, you still hold the opinions, but you're not like shoving it down people's throats. Let's just say that. I mean, I, I think what one one thing that I do differently is I suppose apply pressure in a, in a slightly different way. I, I talk to people who I think have influence and I discuss those ideas with them as opposed to, you know, fairly randomly and publicly stating what I think and so on which I think just creates pretty adversarial situations on the internet that don't really go anywhere yeah that makes sense all right well one more thing before we dive into the sole purpose of this whole podcast episode um which is your book <laughs> I wanted to ask you just kind of on record because we've actually never talked about this in length. Um, why did you decide to get involved in our project in the Natural Landscape Photography Awards as one of the founders? And what has that uh, experience been like for you? Well, so Tim and I have actually, we actually talked about it for many years, um, largely in response to the UK competition and, and largely because the UK competition didn't seem to follow its own rules. So Tim and I actually got to know each other partly through uh, one year. There were some composites that, that won the competition um, categories. And when we pointed that out to the organisers, they sort of said, oh, well, it's within the spirit of the competition, even if it sort of directly broke their rules. And then, you know, I, I think uh, some of those prizes were stripped eventually. But anyway, I got to know Tim a little better through that, funnily enough. Um, and we, we'd always talked about doing a, a competition in the UK just to set a really high standard uh, because there, there wasn't really this problem in the UK, to be honest, with, with compositing. And that was never really a motivation, um, at least at, at that point. Um, it was about 
having a competition that really represented the exceptional work that landscape photographers in the UK, in this case, were doing. Um, and, and that actually, when the um, Wildlife Photographer of the Year stopped doing a landscape category, then that was almost the only thing that was worth, really worth winning that said something um, to me as a landscape photographer, which of course is a strange thing to say, given that it was a wildlife photo uh, photography competition. Um, so that was the straw straw that broke the camel's back. But um, another big interest for me was actually burying the hatchet with the whole reality and post-processing debate in that, I, you know, I could put my name behind something and say, well, look, this is what I am doing now. Um, and you and I both know it's not a great money-making endeavour, so we must be... <laughs> <laughs> we must be doing this for some reason um yeah and and i and i have enjoyed the process i do enjoy looking at people's work and and assessing it i'm glad that i'm not one of the judges who actually decides who who the winners are to be honest but being part of observing that process and obviously setting the framework for how the discussions between judges happen and so on um that that for me has been very rewarding so i'm still very much enjoying uh being part of that competition yeah, I love what you said about instead of, you know, complaining, like, I'm going to do something about it and put my name behind it and see where that goes. And that's, that's been a huge motivator for me as well. It's like, you know, you can only you can be as vocal as you want and, you know, get into arguments with people and, you know, chase people around with pitchforks. But until you actually do something meaningful to push the craft in a direction that you think it should go, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, exactly. And um, the the one thing that has been really nice is the competition really has been timed just as that, you know, the, there's the swell of change is happening and, and the competition's kind of riding that change in a way. And we're starting to see other competitions change. And, you know, in some ways we've we've lost our uniqueness uh, in terms of our processing rules and so on, because other competitions have I don't know if they've had to catch up with us, but they've certainly had to catch up with the way photographers are thinking now about photography. And, and we're part of that. And that's, for me, a, a, a big success, whether it's directly the competition or, or not. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about your new book, The Great Wilderness. So first, let me say, knowing you um, and having seen your obsessive, meticulous attention to detail. I'm sure that the book is going to be incredible. I mean, I've never met anyone who actually decided that it would be a good idea to practice calligraphy for the purpose of scribing the title um, on their book cover and then doing a hand-drawn map insert. So tell, tell everyone what you got going on with this book. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, it is it is a photography book. I should probably say that because in some ways, in you know, if, if I'm going to talk about it, I get more excited about the book aspects because, of course, the photography is is done at this point. Um, but yeah, I've I've spent four years um, out in this mountain area, the Great Wilderness, and, and one of the the exciting things about that particular area for me is that it it's relatively little known to the UK public, so it's actually. Um, in an area of the Northwest Highlands uh, that there's a, 
a road that runs past it called the North Coast 500 that's become incredibly popular over the last five, six years. Um, but actually from that road, you can't really see the mountains of, of Fisherfield and Letteryou and Dundonald, which are the mountains that make up this larger area that's colloquially known as the, the Great Wilderness. Um, so, so part of the appeal is that you know, we could have this landscape in the UK that, okay, I wasn't revealing it for the first time. These are known mountains that people hike up. But at least it, it was fairly fresh um, to other photographers and, and to the wider public. So that's quite an exciting prospect for me in what's a very densely populated country, uh, as we discovered during the during the COVID pandemic. Um, so, yeah, I, I pursued the photography pretty obsessively um but i've really enjoyed this last year in particular obsessing over the book itself uh yeah i mean making the map was a really fun process for me actually um learning how to use mapping software using the uk ordnance survey data sets which actually require quite a lot of massaging to get to turn them into a into a map um and then trying to you know embellish that and, and mold it into the sort of old style that I felt was evocative of the region and uh yeah and then incorporating my own calligraphy which yeah is something that I've actually done for for well many years now my, my grandmother taught me calligraphy um mm. but I sort of I just get the pens out every few years for one reason or another and uh and this us usually to impress somebody on a birthday card or something <laughs> <laughs> um but uh it was it was great to you know spend time doing that kind of thing thinking that other people might value that too and that's really the the ethos that's gone into the book um how can i make it the best it possibly can be uh cost be damned basically uh yeah yeah what so wh why why a book why not uh why not do you know like a box set or an uh, an online gallery like why go to all of the great lengths that are required in order to produce a high quality book i mean i i would love to do exhibitions and prints and and do that on a regular basis and and have those images uh seen by a lot of people um it's very very difficult to make that happen in the uk and particularly in the style of photography that i'm working in these uh, very illustrative landscapes it's seen as a um, you know a very documentary approach i'm not sure that it's really as regarded regarded as art in the uk um certainly it's seen more that way in the states but it's very rare that people are, are able to do solo exhibitions um at least that would run for a long period of time or be seen by a large number of people um and, and aside from that obviously with a book you can present a much more extensive body of work and uh, and do something that is far more ambitious I've, I've actually sometimes wondered why I take the approach that I do with my photography. I'm, I'm not sure why it is because obviously it, it's quite, it's quite a difficult route to choose and it's not amazingly financially productive. So it doesn't necessarily make that much sense, but I, I think I, I like the idea that I can outwork people. Um, <laughs> other people um, can decide whether I'm good at what I do, um, whether there's any art in my approach and, and so on. You know, I'm not I'm not going to stand here and say that I'm a terrible photographer or anything like that. I find it pretty tedious when people are ridiculously modest because it just feels false to me. But 
you know, I, I wouldn't like to say, you know, compare myself to other other photographers and on an artistic basis, but being able to create bodies of work that are out of reach of people, not because I'm a greater artist, but because I've worked really, really hard um, is quite rewarding in itself to me. Um, and and I, th I think that's a big part of producing a book is it is it's very hard and therefore intrinsically worthwhile i'm not sure how true that actually is um but that's that's the way i feel about it anyway yeah man we can go so many directions off of that comment because i know in a lot of the conversations we've had you are a huge proponent of the grand landscape but in particular obviously mountains on the surface i'm going to someone's going to throw something at the at their key at their screen or something but on the surface, like a photograph of a mountain is very, um, like you said, documentary. It's, you know, you said illust illustrative. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, when you're out making these images for the book and you're trying to, quote unquote, outwork everyone else, what are the ways in which you're trying to string things together or compose the image in a way that kind of elevates it above and beyond just another photograph of a mountain? Uh, well, in some ways, I'm not trying to do that. Um, so I'm I'm quite happy um, being called a documentary photographer or having people look at my work and saying, if I was stood there, I could have taken that photo. That honestly doesn't bother me. I might I might think that it's wrong um, because, of course, you and I know that even if you're just framing up a view, it requires some skill some understanding to to do that well but yeah i mean the first thing to say is that that isn't particularly important to me um either way but i obviously love to incorporate my, my own ideas when they occur to me and i don't do that in a really forced way if i'm on a mountaintop and there's an amazing view and there's amazing light then the foreground really needs to justify itself in the frame so i'm not going to start constructing complicated compositions or trying to come up with clever ideas when i think it's going to get in the way of the beauty of a scene and beauty for me is absolutely you know a, an amazing thing to incorporate in your images it's it's not a trivial thing it's not some lowly uh, you know aspect of, of the landscape that we should ignore it's it's the access point to um engaging people in in photography and in the landscape as a whole and i think it's a very powerful thing that i want to embrace wholeheartedly so anything that gets in the way of that i generally will leave out of the frame um but obviously there are times when you, you come across subjects which you can incorporate in a really harmonious way with beautiful qualities or when you're working in light that's maybe um, less obviously beautiful and then you're trying to elevate those scenes by doing something more interesting compositionally. But I, but I wouldn't like to say that I, you know, I, I set out to uh, sort of force my art on the world, if, if that makes sense, or force my art upon the landscape because I, I think... There are some photographers who can do that very, very successfully, um, but they are a rare breed. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe maybe one day I will get to the point where I can do that more naturally uh, so that it doesn't get in the way of the landscape. But at the moment, I feel like uh, the, the balance for me is about right. And let's talk about predominantly subjects in your book are we talking for the most part uh grand scenics i mean are you incorporating any 
smaller vignettes of nature in your book, like um, textures of rock or like, or is it straight, you know, just beautiful landscape, uh, classic landscape scenes? Straight up classic landscapes. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've not, I've not given in to the, the modern passion for intimate scenes. Um, yeah, the, the answer to that is, uh, uh, there are a few photographers who've done that with their Scottish landscapes. Um, mm. Joe Cornish is one, Colin Pryor is another, both iconic and incredibly um, talented photographers, groundbreaking photographers. And I have never personally been engaged, been engaged by that work that they have produced. Hmm. Uh, I've been engaged by the grand landscapes. And of course, there are some cases where those smaller landscapes provide real context. And I've thought, okay, that, that works. But that's the exception rather than the rule. And I know, having spoken to Joe about it, that you know he feels that those smaller scenes are, are very important in his work. But that isn't the way I feel about them. Um, and similarly with my own work, except for I'm not as good at shooting those scenes as, <laughs> as Joe is. Um, and it's really difficult being an artist or, or, or being in an artistic field and having expectations for yourself and, and setting goals and making comparisons. And I think that's something that is a problem for me in in some ways that can push you forward to excellence um in others it stops you creating things entirely and when i look at the work of somebody like david ward who i still think is underappreciated please do go and look at his work um i see all of the brilliance of a photographer who's dedicated himself to shooting intimate scenes and i think if I want to include intimate scenes in my book, they need to be that good. But I haven't got a lifetime of experience behind me. Um, so I tried. Um, I tried many times. I think the uh, Scottish intimate landscapes, let's say, um, are a lot more complex than you might find in other areas of the world. We have highly textured rock, grasses that fly all over the place, muddy pools. And, you know, it, it can be very difficult to find the levels of simplicity that lend themselves easily to intimate scenes. Let's put it that way. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I tried and, uh, you know, I have a couple of shots that are OK, but uh, they didn't uh, go into the book because then that feels very incoherent if you just have a few of these scenes you need to take a fairly consistent approach so yeah it's just grand landscapes well it's like you said sticking to your guns uh speaking speaking of strong opinions i know you have very very high standards for photography books what in your mind makes or breaks a photography book and what can others do to make their book stand out my my favorite photography books are photography books that have a strong idea behind them so it doesn't need to be a, a book of a place like you know this this book obviously is um but but something where the photographer has set out to achieve something you know i mean they may not have started the project with the intent of making a book but let's say at least halfway through they've decided okay here's the book here's the concept now here's how i'm going to flesh it out and then they start physically putting the book together and thinking which images are going to work together and how they can create a flow through the book or a story or a feeling and I don't have a massive collection of books and 
um, the books that I buy and that I keep are the ones that that follow roughly that pattern. Um, my t- my two absolutely reliable photographers for doing that at the moment are Theo Bosboom and, and Sandra Bartoka. And actually, um, Sandra does uh, some of has done some of the work on on Theo's books as well, which I I think does show through. Um, and th- and then there are photographers who uh, who. I just find inspirational who I love their greatest hits books because you know they're inspirational photographers for me so I do understand the appeal of that style of book but in general when people put out a greatest hits book which to me is okay I've taken enough photos of this place now let's just chuck a book together or um, these are the best photos I've taken in the last three years so let's see if I can attach a few little stories to each one um, and sell sell a book that way I mean I completely understand why that would appeal to somebody who's a fan of their work but to me um, I'm looking for a book that elevates the work as, as a whole to something entirely different that isn't just a collection of standalone images let's let's talk about design a little bit what are some of the considerations that you've had to make in terms of paper you know you know the texture of the paper the thickness of the paper the um is it glossy is it matte you know like and then you have layout of images like what are some of the things you've had to kind of wrap your head around and maybe talk talk through some of the the choices that you made so maybe a bit unusual when it comes to paper in that I want my prints to be on beautiful paper and maybe varied paper, but I actually don't want to see the paper in a photography book. Um, I can find that that gets in the way of the images, particularly sort of heavier weight images, uh, papers, which then you would even struggle to open a double page spread. So I prefer um, simple silk papers. Um, Matte papers work brilliantly with certain styles of photography. Um, Sandra actually has, uh, I think a couple of her books are, are on a matte paper and it, it, it works brilliantly well with this sort of more painterly feel that she's achieving with her images. But with Grand Landscapes, it'd be completely wrong. So um, I, I think you're almost forced down a sort of silk, even if it's a textured silk line. Glossy just looks garish. Um <laughs> So, I, yeah, I, I think you have to go with that kind of finish. Whether you have a slight texture, I suppose, is, is personal choice. But for me, the texture then gets in the way of, of the images. And, and it does make the book more expensive. So, I mean, if I'm not getting any benefit out of it myself, it's not something I'm even going to consider. Yeah, with the other production aspects, I mean, I, I think it's really important that books are, are viewed as physical things not just sort of delivery devices for images um because that for me is a lot of the fun of books it's it's seeing how people have put their own personality into the cover design and their materials choices and how the images are sequenced obviously but all all of those peripheral aspects i think are quite important um they build towards a bigger whole uh and you know it's it's a bit like making a plate of food look beautiful it tastes better there's lots of studies that show that a book is is the same thing it's very important to package your book in a way that that is pleasing um and and i i love the traditions around book binding i mean i kind of have a uh, sort of interest in it now I follow various book binders who are you know rebinding in really traditional ways uh, leather binding and so on so I, I have that kind of interest anyway um, but 
for me, using cloth covers is is quite important because not only is it a more durable way of binding, but I think it's understated and beautiful and it sort of leans into that feel of what I might be wanting to achieve with my images. Even if I've got fiery sunsets, I'd like to think that my approach to them at least is understated. I'm not amping them up beyond what they were. I mean, I, I think about all those things and then fall asleep thinking of cover designs i can't tell you how many times i've redesigned this book cover in my head as i fell asleep i'm i'm weird like that but it works for me i uh, often drift off that way <laughs> <laughs> so i've got your first book here mm -hmm. which has a very you know i would say you know there's not a lot going on on the covers yeah very minimal yeah yeah very minimal but you've got the kind of the, the linen um kind of cloth mm -hmm. cover that you had referred to and um Maybe talk about the design. Like, are you sticking to a very similar design with, with um, you know, an image and a very simple description, or is there going to be more to it than that? Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I am sticking to exactly the same theme, really, as as was in that book. Um, chapters uh, with introductions and stories in there. For, for me, that was something I was really happy with with the first book um, because. I think obviously you want to break break the work down in some way otherwise it becomes really monotonous and I think that's actually a very important part of of book design um there's actually one of my favorite books that I I um have opened continually throughout this book design process is is Colin Pryor this Scottish photographer's book he produced a book called Fragile which is uh pairing birds eggs with the landscapes that those birds uh, mm. live in and he'll try to color match quite often the egg to the landscape where that's possible uh, and it's just a very beautiful idea um, that, that's that been perfectly executed but one thing that he has done is recognize just how monotonous it could be if you went egg landscape egg landscape egg la I mean it just it's the same idea repeated 50 times and of course that is the nature of the book there's no getting away from that but he's done a brilliant job of of doing full page spreads of one egg for example or he'll have multiple eggs on a page and then the landscape's on fire because it's a fire affected landscape and he's very very purposely thought about how that sequence works to to break up the book um I've done that in a much more simple way, uh, chapters, chapter headings, chapter descriptions. But then the stories for me um, add a bit of context. They explain what goes into the work. And that was something I was happy with with the last book. And uh, I've, I've kept that the same. Similarly with the page design, actually, I mean, I, I thought you were going to uh, ask about that when you when you open the book, actually, because the, the way photos sit on the page really matters to me. Um, and I'm I'm quite particular. I don't I don't know if I've kind of uh, just seen my own book too, too often or something. But when when I see so some of Sandra's, I mean, keep going back to Sandra. Some of Sandra's layouts I just don't like at all, and I completely understand from a design perspective why they're dynamic and how that um, puts a design aesthetic on top of the images that again builds towards this greater whole. So she's doing something very different there, which is. Um, showing her skills as a designer and expressing herself in a designer uh, as a designer sorry with the photos as the vessel as well as the delivery of her own you know photographic ideas so it's kind of a design on top of art um, but I don't really want to do that with with my book I don't want to 
show my skills as a designer if I have any at all and I'm not sure that I do by the way um, <laughs> o- over the top of the images I, I want to display just the images um, and, and so that is very much what I've done and in most cases I will either do a full bleed image so that's an image that runs to the edges of the page or it has a healthy white border and nothing really in between and no you know tiny images on the top corner of the page no blank pages it's another thing that book designers will often incorporate blank pages to give you some breathing space i've i've never really experienced that myself so again it's not something i'm going to to do but uh, i understand the idea at least so you've got one book done which i think you i don't know maybe what do you feel like your first book was successful Yes, I do. I wouldn't like to admit to the things that were unsuccessful about it. Um, there, there are some things. There are some things that I would change, but because I put in a huge amount of effort into it and a lot of consideration, um, I don't have any regrets, which is a nice place place to be. Some of the the problems with the book were out of my control. Some of them were within my control. Typos, American spellings. God. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I'm I'm still I'm still very happy with it, and it's not um, yeah, it's not ever going to change. I I don't think, um, but I have nevertheless, you know, developed my ideas in that time, and particularly improved my understanding of what goes into making a, a good book and what it takes to print an image really well, um, so that the next one will will be better. So you're making yet another book, and. As you and I both know, having worked on two book projects with NLPA, and you've got your own book, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. You know, you've got, um, mm. you know, you've got problems at the printer that can happen. You've got typos, as you've described. You've got um, shipping. You've got storage. You've got so many different things that are just, you know, in your control but not in your control. And then there's all these things that like just can go so wrong. So are you some kind of crazy masochist or do you just really enjoy complicating your life? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think uh, it's Emily, my, my wife, that I feel most sorry for, to be honest. I mean, I, I think the last book was just far enough away that she's forgotten how annoyed she got <laughs> having boxes of books lying around the house. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the hardest thing at the start is that you're not actually making any money. You've just got lots of books. Um, and uh, actually, this, this book release was uh, was timed around child number one to fill in a little bit of a financial gap, which maybe will, will start to happen next year. But um, there's a lot that goes into it. But then I suppose I've never actually thought of the downsides of, uh, of all those things, because to me, being able to deliver a body of work that could be seen by a thousand plus people is you know just far a far greater thing than than any of the downsides and i also quite like solving the some of those problems so particularly the technical problems the problems around printing i've started to get really interested in that really get into the weeds of of how to get that just right mm-hmm. yeah no i mean i've got I don't know, what is that, like five boxes of books right there in the corner? That's just the ones that aren't in storage. So yeah. I, it's there's a lot that goes into it. And we'll, we'll go, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of that here a little bit later, um, for sure. But, uh, and I think those are some of the kind of 
practical questions people have about books, especially self-publishing versus using a publisher, things like that. Um, but I want to make sure I don't forget to cover one more question around kind of the theme of your book and thematic books in particular. Um, so, I mean, earlier you had spoken to the fact that you really like thematic books over greatest hits, so mm-hmm. uh, for lack of a better term. And I certainly don't disagree with you. I, I actually really like thematic books as well. However, I feel like most photographers would be very hard-pressed to create a book um, in that style without a great deal of planning, dedication, and purpose and purpose to focus uh, what what it is they're actually making their book about. Um, And I know you did the same, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that realistically looked like for you, including the amount of time you spent creating images for the book, not only just in terms of how many years it took, how many years did you focus your effort on it, but also like how many days or hours in the field did you spend? Um, yeah, I haven't actually calculated the days in the field. That'd be an interesting one. But I did um, add up all my hikes. This is going to seem like nothing to you because you've just done this ridiculous hike in Colorado, of course. But um, <laughs> I hiked uh, 420 miles in uh, in the Great Wilderness. And more than half of that was, was with groups. And so most of the time with breaks and stops and so on, I was going about two to three kilometers an hour depending on the terrain and whether you're off path and how much you're carrying and how slow the group is and so on um oh and i'm trying to think remember now my my fig i mean it was it was something like a month working walking six hours a day you know it was some ridiculous amount of time just physically walking which actually you know when i think about how the trips work makes sense because i camped for um I think it was 48 or 49 nights actually in in the mountains there. And then every day I'm walking for, I mean, minimum four hours, but six hours quite quite often and not as hard or as fast as I can walk. That's not the purpose of, of the trip. But uh, yeah, you can see how that, that adds up uh, pretty quickly in terms of hiking time and hiking effort and time out in the elements. Um, I wouldn't know how to account for the days when you don't go because the weather is rubbish and you know you know to to wait and uh and and get that weather window um there's a lot of people who of course assume that if i've got an amazing sunset from a mountain then it must be because i've been up 10 times but of course if you're going up a lot of mountains sometimes you get lucky the very first time and and never go up again and and certainly that's the case with some of the images in the book um, one of the mountains of Asian, which is the most remote mountain uh, or Monroe, a peak over 3000 feet in Scotland, um, because the views there are are so exceptional. There's there's three absolutely outstanding and completely separate views from from one mountain, which is very unusual. Um, at least have views of that caliber. Usually a mountain would have one of this really high caliber and then, you know, little subsidiary details and so on. But it really is an unbelievable uh, summit. It's got a wide grassy plateau suitable for camping, water source 200 meters below. So every trip I've uh, I've done with groups, I've taken people to, um, up evasion, uh, well, almost every trip. Um, so I went up there 10 times for this, this book. Um, and 
yeah, I mean that that alone is <laughs> is a lot of visits uh, t- to one mountain. Um, but it, it's been it, well, it's been interesting photographing that mountain because, of course, I saw it in a whole variety of different conditions and seasons too. Um, I went up there in a win in the winter, which was a, a very long held dream of mine actually. So, is I was pretty emotional when I when I got up there in these perfect conditions. Winter is fickle in the UK, so even to have suitable snow conditions is lucky enough. But to be able to get up the most remote Monroe, I doubt any photographer has done that actually. They might have, but I certainly haven't haven't heard of it. Uh, so yeah, that that was a big moment. But one of the funny things about having gone up Evasion ten times was on about the fifth visit, I found this uh, this rock. It's sort of the shape of um, uh, a coffin, and and about the size of a coffin, and in this really interesting conglomerate. And geology is sort of part of the interest of photographing these areas. And I thought, right, I've got to get back to that stone. It, made this lovely geometric composition with the mountains interlocking behind it um and i visited five more times and never had the opportunity to take uh, the photo this center and i and i loved this composition so much that i was like right line in the sand i'm not publishing the book until i've got this photo <laughs> anyway i never i never got that photo um so there's there's always something more to do um I, and i'll look forward to going back to that mountain but yeah i mean there's there's a lot that I didn't do to be honest. There's there's paths that I didn't walk that I wanted to. You do have to stop at a certain point. Um, as as much as I would like to say no stone left unturned, that would be a lifetime's work um, to literally do that. So uh, yeah. So what what did it look like for you to decide enough's enough? I have enough to make a book, or I'm good to go. So the the winter trip was was the absolute key for me. So, I mean, waiting for winter in Scotland can be really infuriating, but but nowhere more so than the Northwest Highlands because its proximity to the uh, the sea means that it's a, a lot milder than other areas. Um, so the the Gulf Stream, uh, you know, flows past the UK and gives us one of the greatest. Um, warming effects for our latitude anywhere in the world in fact it's only the Lofoten Islands in Norway that's that's greater so we we could have the same uh, climate as Halifax but uh, it's fortunately a lot warmer here but that that warming effect of the sea um, it does bring in all these storms and all this moisture which creates lovely dynamic weather we've certainly got no shortage of uh, you know dramatic clouds and so on but that warming issue is is a big problem for winters that have become milder and wetter over time as well so I set aside enormous amounts of, uh, well, particularly January, February and March every year for three years, knowing that I would need to do that. And you can imagine how expensive that is and how frustrating. I mean, you know, you're telling friends, yeah, sure, I can come to your birthday, but not if I need to go to Scotland. And, you know, there's all of the sort of family type stuff and friends stuff that you would ordinarily plan that kind of potentially has to be shelved you can't go go away on holiday you can't plan workshops everything is is put on hold and of course there were some exceptions to that but uh when this winter spell finally came i have to say it was an incredibly inconvenient time it's uh i was i was not in emily's good books for various reasons <laughs> I, <laughs> I let her down quite significantly then but um I, I had to go because this was the one spell in, in three years uh, where I suspected I would be able to get these images of fresh snow. And 
and once I'd done that I had represented all of the seasons in all of the chapters of the book and so then I felt like I had the diversity of images where I could say okay we publish next year now we just push see if I can you know fill in the gaps um, dot the I's and, and cross the T's and then we publish that's that's amazing so when you set out with this whole book idea it sounds like you had a pretty good idea of you wanted to represent all four seasons of this area um were there any other considerations that you had in terms of like oh i have to have you know these 10 mountains or like how did you determine your shot list that's actually a good question because yeah i absolutely did do that um one of the funny conversations actually that, that crops up from time to time in landscape photography is, do you plan your images? Right. And it's very in vogue to say, oh no, I just, I just respond, I'm, I'm an artist. I just float around and when I see something, I, I use my skills and transform it into something magical. Um, I, I've never really approached photography that way, but it would never work doing the kind of uh, photography that I do. I mean, of course, you, you would get lucky sometimes, but in order, you know, if, if you want to represent these kind of grand scenes in transcendent lighting conditions, it doesn't just happen. You have to you have to really try for that. You have to look at weather forecasts, time your ascents, consider you know, everything that's going into a trip, potentially with the idea of getting to one place on one evening that's forecasted three days out. And so I, I did, I mean, I never actually wrote it down in, in a list, but because uh, in my previous book, Northwest, I'd done a chapter on the Great Wilderness, I had a good idea of the potential of the area and the various scenes that I could be incorporating. I I, I had a number of scenes where I just said, right, I throw everything at these things, uh, at making these the best they, they possibly can be. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it has to be heavy clouds overhead with a gap on the horizon for a red sun to shine through, though, of course, if that happens, great. But it, it meant that the, the weather and lighting conditions really had to be bringing something to the view so that, it, it you know, I, I think it's just it's just a really good way to get people to engage with the landscape photography through these powerful images. It still works. Um, and it still excites me. It's something that motivates me. So that can give me the impetus to, to go into these areas again and again and again, and then you respond and then you find all of these other scenes and then you fill in, um, all the gaps in, in, in a sort of photographic narrative, so to speak. So I was very deliberate. I did have, um, I guess maybe a dozen scenes where, you know, I just went at them incessantly until I felt I was successful. Um, and the rest kind of fell into place around those those images hmm. and then i'm curious too like when have you been sharing a lot of the images that you've created for the book or have you been kind of keeping them close to the vest knowing that they'd be revealed to the world in the book i mean that's another thing that that i love to do if i can is keep as much of the work back as possible obviously that isn't entirely possible and it's not entirely savvy either because you want to be able to market the book um so some of those uh, images i have um sort of es let escape into the ether one way one way or another um whether it's been in a you know a couple have been in a, a calendar or a print box um but 
I think I think if you are really obsessive about my work, some sort of like stalker type who's bought everything <laughs> I've ever sold and watched every video I ever put out, uh, then you might have seen forty percent of the images, something like that. Okay, May, maybe even fifty. Um, but most people will have seen maybe quarter of them if they've watched a lot of my YouTube videos and so on. So uh, yeah, most of them are kept back, and I, and I think that's because when I've opened books and seen a whole load of new work, I found that incredibly exciting. And that always used to be the case. When I when I bought these books from Joe Cornish and David Ward and Colin Pryor, there's hardly an image that I'd ever seen before. But of course, social media has changed all that. And, and I think it is a shame when you buy a book from a photographer and it's sort of all work that you've seen before, um, as much as you can still think that it's amazing work, of course. Um, so yeah, that's been a difficult thing to do, but then it's also quite nice to not have to worry about posting your work and oh, don't go on any of my social channels. I, I mean, I basically started posting again just to announce the book. It's, <laughs> it's pretty awful. Like, yeah. oh, he hasn't posted since 2018. Okay then. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. I must have something to sell. Yeah. Right. Well, let's talk about printing. What actually, uh, what are what all's involved in the pr printing process? What all have you had to go through in order to get this thing from concept to actual physical print? Which, it's not even there yet, right? Yeah, so I, I go to print on Monday. Um, which? Or a, a week, a week, yeah, on Monday. Yeah, which right now we're six in... Six days or whatever. End of September, and this episode will come out later, but... That's right, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm printing uh, on well is it monday the 2nd of, of october um and then baby comes at the end of october so i'm actually delaying the delivery of the books but usually it's you know a few weeks to bind and then, and then you get delivery so it's maybe a month delay um everything's being done in the uk incidentally because i think that's really important um to me to be able to be on press but also to support an industry that has a pretty proud history in the uk and all the jobs and all, all that good sort of thing which i think is worth paying for and, and boy do you pay for it um yeah but uh yeah, the, the the actual print process is is interesting. Um, you do need to understand color and and what you're going to lose in the process potentially. So, um, litho printing is uh, based on four colors: um, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, which most people will know. CMYK, which incidentally I'm probably going to call CYMK because for some reason that glitch happens to me i say the letters in the wrong order um but uh because you have only these four colors that does somewhat restrict the color gamut that you have available in practical terms for most landscape photographers particularly if you have fairly sensible colors in, in your images you know accepting sunsets and so on when of course you get full saturation um you're only really going to get problems with blues if you have a perfect process so a strong ultramarine blue can only be reproduced um, in litho printing by combining cyan and magenta but cyan and magenta together are not in, as intensely blue as a blue pigment might be uh, so you lose saturation there and, and in some ways it's like going from adobe rgb into srgb and i don't want to get into that whole thing <laughs> because i've got some opinions there too um i i work in srgb which does make it a little easier to go go into cymk um the vast majority of my images would be within the cymk gamut anyway but some of the colors are slightly out and 
of, of gamut and so you would lose some saturation so then you have to make the choice between keeping them hue accurate and losing the saturation or shifting the hue slightly and increasing the saturation so for example um one of my favorite snow scenes in fact the snow scene from evasion that i am you know is one of my great achievements if you like not artistically but from a an effort perspective this this long-held dream right, everything um, came together ex exactly uh, you know so so the light was failing and it had just the right softness to pick up the shape of the snow but fundamentally you're drifting into blue light and so um the valley that i was shooting down into covered in snow is just reflecting the blue of the sky um and it's an ultramarine blue in that case i had to keep some of the color intensity there so i do a combination of desaturating the blue and allowing it to shift slightly into cyan um, because that's the closest way to um evoke you know what i intended if you like um although it does create the complexity that for the people who ordered that print for my print um, the collector's edition, the print isn't going to match that particular image perfectly, but at least they're getting the better version as, as a loose print. But there aren't too many images um, where you need to make that kind of correction. Mostly, if you have a, a, a well-calibrated screen and an understanding of how to move between color spaces, you should be able to see the change happening on screen firstly, so you can adapt if, if necessary, but also the, the change should be very small to the point that it isn't even a problem. And then uh, you can get into issues with blacks, and that's quite a complex subject too. Um, with um, litho printing, you can't achieve quite the same contrast that you could with um, a, a gclay print um, on on a you know desktop printer or, or with a lab, and certainly not compared to say you know one of the acrylics that you have behind you there. So if you've lost that contrast, the question is: Do you want to lose the contrast across? all your images to a small extent or do you want to swallow the blacks a bit more and keep the contrast in your mid-tones and highlights so there's a there's a trade-off to be to be made there in some cases i've allowed the you know the blacks to be swallowed a little bit but in most cases i've allowed them to be swallowed and then lifted them if that makes sense For sure. so i kind of get the best of both worlds um just massaging the detail in the deep shadows um and and that is a complexity of, of of litho printing that maybe does need a little bit of experience because in order to get the blackest black, you don't just put down 100% black, you put down um, CYMK. Uh, so mostly black, but you want to put down color as well because that's going to create an even deeper black that's known as rich black. And different print standards have different definitions for what rich black actually is in terms of the amount of C, Y and M or C, M and Y. Um, yeah, so you, you can definitely get into the real nitty gritty of it with that sort of stuff. But uh, in, in Europe, um, we're usually working to the Fogra 39 standard for coated papers, and that kind of defines what these things are. And really it for most photographs it's just a matter of converting to that profile and then making minor adjustments and of course doing all your resizing and sharpening and, and all that business as you usually would with a, a normal print so i'm imagining you've got a, your lightroom catalog i'm guessing you're probably using collections to like this is all the stuff that's going into the book and then 
you have a version of the file that's probably for print and then you've like duplicated it to convert to CM CYMK uh, yeah. and then you make the adjustments to that and then you're exporting that for the book and exporting the other for the prints. That is exactly what I'm doing here. So, um, <laughs> All right. yeah, yeah, just um, so I, I rename the files that I'm using for the book just to identify them very clearly and, and sort of keep a master PSD that I don't do any conversions to. Um, I create a Photoshop action to automate the conversion to the color space that I don't make any mistakes when I'm doing that. Hmm. Um, and I have an action to automate the resizing as well so that I'm hitting 300 um pixels per inch for every image and that sort of thing and then i save that as a psd in a separate folder and that becomes my master for when i'm tweaking the files for print and every image actually finishes as a, as a jpeg because you absolutely cannot see the difference between jpegs and, and tiffs and it makes the file sizes uh, much smaller i know this is a question that comes up all the time when people are thinking about doing a book how much has this cost you and what kind of decisions did you make in order to evaluate cost, quality, and shipping? Oh, you're not going to like the financial side, Matt, because I know you're like a you're a numbers guy who likes to look at this kind of optimization. Um, I, to be honest, I put so much effort into this book. I've always falsely believed that um, people will pay for quality. <laughs> <laughs> The cream or rice, the hot, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's basically nonsense. I think anybody who knows about marketing and business knows that marketing and price points and cutting costs and all that are the, the way to making a, a financial success out of something. But the truth is that if you make a book like this, it's such a big personal statement that it just isn't acceptable to me to cut corners in in any aspect of it to be perfectly honest i mean within reason i mean it's not you know gold leaf or anything but um uh, you know anything that i think can contribute to the quality and overall impression of the book i've just done that because you know if it costs i mean for example um debossing the design into the cover as well as foiling that adds i think 60p a book or something so times that by uh 1500 which is probably the number of books that i'm going to print and uh yeah you're getting up towards a thousand pounds to deboss as opposed to foiling um you know which is why you'll see some books that either deboss or foil but not both um the book cloth that i chose that added I can't remember if it was 500 or a thousand pounds in the end, but I tested the book cloth and it, it's beautiful. It's rich, but it also doesn't mark easily, which has been something that's bugged me about other people's books in the past. So I haven't really done, done anything to cut costs at all. Um, Oh no, there, there was there was one thing actually. It actually worked out slightly more expensive to use coloured end papers than my own design. So I thought, well, I'll obviously design my own end papers because that's just a much nicer thing anyway. So they will also be printed end papers. That's the the paper that connects the the case of the book, the the cover of the book to the book block itself, the pages. Um, but I mean, one of one of the really difficult things about book printing is is numbers. It's it's a numbers game, and really, you want to be as famous as possible to, 
to print a book. And, you know, uh, maybe um, people know me who, who listen to this podcast because I had this, you know, I've been on three times or whatever. And, uh, you know, you know me, but but most people don't. Most photographers don't. I'm not a huge YouTuber or anything like that. I'm not some uh, big fish in the landscape photography world, even if I've got a loud mouth. Um, and so... <laughs> Uh, you know, I can't print vast numbers of books, uh, but I can print enough to make it financially viable, um, particularly if, if I can get pre-orders to help pay for the, the book run. But roughly speaking, in the UK, to make a book print viable, litho printing, you have to print 500 books. It's it's the bare minimum that, that you could make ends meet. Um, unless you manage to achieve some astronomically high price for each individual book. Um, so roughly speaking, um, let's say one book is going to cost, uh, 15,000 pounds and 1500 books is going to cost 28,000 pounds. It's kind of like that. The, the, mm -hmm. the setup cost is absolutely astronomical because the way you, um, actually produce, uh, each page is you create a, a number of aluminium plint prints uh sorry prints uh, sort of sheets of aluminium that have the uh c or y or m or k um imprinted into the surface of the aluminium those print plates are then used to actually you know on the press to, to run the inks through um and that whole process is is slow getting the initial plates created and then put into the machine of course that takes time on the machine but once you press go the paper just comes out. I mean, if you know, if you've watched Catch Me If You Can, where Leonardo DiCaprio is going nuts as all these, you know, things are being printed out, it's that kind of crazy speed. They just absolutely fly off the press, um, you know, faster than one a second, or as fast as one a second, let's say. Um, so the time on press to print a thousand versus two thousand, I mean, it makes hardly any difference compared to the setup time of the press. Um, so there's a point where you're just paying for materials effectively. Um, so the run on cost for these books, uh, that I'm producing, uh, is 10 pounds 79. So, uh, I'm selling the book for 49 pounds, which obviously then I go, woo, I can make 39 pounds a book, but, but that's only the run, <laughs> that's the run on cost. Okay. So that's not considering the, the initial setup cost. But obviously, if you printed um, a million books, then they have basically cost you £10.79 a book. Um, but of course, what that means is you are always enticed to print more. And because the setup cost is so astronomical, you can't do a second run, or at least you would need similar demand to, to do a second run. So if I print 1,500 books, it costs X. But if I uh, print another 1,000 books... Um, it's it's going to cost me ten thousand pounds, so you know one third of what I've already spent. But if I can't sell a thousand books, if I'm just storing those books, then it becomes a bit of a fool's game. So it it is. Um, in some ways, I quite like it because it's like um, fortune favors the brave stuff. And my last book, if if I've if I ordered another five hundred books, maybe even a thousand books, I could have sold them by now. But that doesn't mean I'm able to just recklessly gamble. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. It's it's really fascinating. And that's, of course, why some people do, um, you know, avoid it entirely because you don't want to be 
lumbered with masses of books and it's why the pre-orders are so important because you can break even earlier on in the process and also get rid of a load of stock very very quickly and what was your thinking on shipping because i know when we did the nlpa books one of the hardest things for us is how much of the shipping costs we want to eat especially for people who don't live in the uk or in the united states or whatever Mm -hmm. and as you probably have done the math on it, I mean, to ship a book to Australia or New Zealand, it's usually like, I don't know, like $70. I mean, it's, it's nuts, you know? Yeah, so uh, I think NLPA is different because it's an international competition. And so you have, you know, such a great proportion is going internationally that it becomes a major consideration to the point that it isn't viable unless you're charging sensibly for postage. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, uh, two thirds of the books will end up in the UK where the postage cost is low. And so then I have to consider how much I want people to have books in other countries basically and how much of the margin that i do have because of course there is margin there assuming that i can sell all my books um there will eventually be margin that's probably a better way of putting it (laughs) um how how much of that am i willing to to give up to make sure that people who've supported my work and who want to support my work can get a copy of a book that i'm very proud of and the answer to that is um quite a lot of that margin um so australia new zealand and the us in particular i'm paying uh half the postage cost roughly so i figured out the other day that i was make i think i make 17 or 18 pounds once i've sold every single one of my books so i mean at this point it's just a massive loss leader until i've sold let's say i don't know 1100 books or something is when i'm gonna you know start to get past the margin that I would be making money on those books that have already sold, if that makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, it all depends about on, on how you think about this. But yeah, I mean, basically, I'm just going in debt on the postage um, because I think in the long term, that's the right thing to do that, you know, obviously, I can sell more books that way. And and I should, in the long run, still make a, a profit on those sales. But it is a difficult thing to do. I, I sat down with my spreadsheet the other day and realized that I already owe uh, three £3,000 on postage, which is a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> right, because you have a bunch of orders, uh, pre-orders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like it's really great to get orders from the US. And, and But I, I can't, one of the reasons I can't extend that postage offer past the pre-order stage, and unfortunately by the time... Well, I probably I probably will offer some discount because I still want people to to be able to buy it. But postage to the US is thirty four pounds. Well, by the time pre orders are over, I have a finite number of books, and I have to believe that I'm going to sell them. Uh, so obviously, if I'm selling them and making a much smaller margin by selling them to the US, that becomes a much more difficult prospect, which is why I'm incentivizing it so heavily now. But yeah, it's it's difficult, and it's not actually something that you really want to be thinking about as a photographer or somebody who spent a lot of time on a book is how best to strategize your postage pricing but there you go well not only postage but how you ship it i mean like with the materials you use to to physically get it from point a to point b i'm i know that that i mean i had spreadsheets where i'm like okay it costs this much to ship it in this kind of box with you know this type of bubble wrap or whatever and it costs this much to do it this way and Mm -hmm. you know it's it's 
It's <laughs> like you said, that's not what we got. Why we became photographers? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I think the the NLPA book is is big and it's heavy, and that is a problem when it comes to um, packaging in, in particular. I mean, this book will be with its packaging under two kilos which helps for postage but it also helps for damage during postage uh-huh. and i do have yes. the experience of the last book the the only books that actually got damaged were in the u.s internationally believe it or not i think one got lost somewhere else i had um one of my limited edition books it actually had a hole going all the way through the packaging and the book itself like a pole had impaled it somehow <laughs> um so yeah I, I i had like half a dozen books that went to the u.s never never got there or were badly damaged but everywhere else was absolutely fine i think one book was lost in the uk and so i tend to use you know reinforced cardboard packaging and no bubble wrap and that's worked very well for me and then i just replace uh, anything that doesn't arrive or gets damaged obviously yeah well let's talk about publishing self-publishing versus using a publisher um, obviously, you're self-publishing, but what are your, some of the advantages and disadvantages to self-printing versus going with an established publisher, say, like Kozu or here in the States, like Rocky Nook or something like that? I mean, it, so there's a massive a scale here, and, and, and very simply, it's, you know, how much control do you want to give up over every aspect from, you know, how much money you're going to make to, you know, how the book is designed, because you can find an option at every end of the spectrum i mean you've just mentioned um two publishers that are relatively small scale i think and really allow the photographers an enormous amount of control over image sequencing and page design and and so on so uh in some ways that's a a printer at least in the case of um kozu is actually based in bath um so that's where i live i could have just uh, gone down the road there but i actually use a different printers um Kozu are a printers themselves and they've effectively set up a business that helps photographers publish books and I'm not sure what the financial arrangement is there exactly but of course they're taking on some of the financial risk um, and so they're taking some of the profit as well as as they should do of course and that makes the job a lot easier for the photographer particularly when that publisher is dealing with some of the distribution as well. So that's, you know, that's just one model. Um, And then at the most commercial end of the spectrum, you do still have publishers who essentially um, say, okay, this is the book we want to produce. So you provide us with those images and we're going to put them together with with our own words, with our own writer. and you concede all control of of quality and image selection and and so on to the publisher. So I was gonna say like, it seems very unlikely that you would find any publisher who would go for some of the things that you're wanting to do in terms of like the linen covers and the embossing and including like a nice map and things like that. They're, They're all about cutting costs and making it economically viable, which, you know, that makes sense. But at the end of the day, like, that's not the direction you wanted to go as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I actually would because I, I've actually had two publishers who, who did ask me um, if if we could do something together, but you're, you're still in this situation where you give up a degree of control. So I still would have had a lot of influence over the, the des- well, almost totally influence over the design of the book and material selection and so on, but maybe not complete you know maybe i would have had to go for a slightly simpler book cloth or or something like that but um the, the 
the other side of things is you know everything is is mass produced they're dealing with the distribution you know taking a huge chunk of that profit to the point that you're getting four pounds a book or something that can be brilliant if they're going to sell ten thousand but less good if they're going to sell two thousand right um so yeah it's uh you you would have to weigh up all those decisions on a case-by-case basis because there are different options that are suitable for different photographers and certainly if you're um an an amateur photographer or even a professional who can't sell a thousand books just like that there are there are ways to digitally print where you can find a market for smaller runs of books and create exclusivity in different ways um, to do it yourself or you might collaborate with other photographers working with a publisher to put something out um you know that there, there are various compilation books that are released in every country every year with multiple photographers you know that's one one route of access um in into book publishing um but to be honest one of the great things about the market is that there is so much diversity and that there is a growing market for photography books i do think that they're a brilliant way to buy people's work and it's it's something that that i will continue to do um because i just i just think they're fantastic things and particularly when they are well designed and and when the materials are nice and so on yeah i mean to your point uh i i have this book that i co-authored and my public i i had a publisher and they printed twenty thousand copies it's not like a photography book per se right but it's Mm -hmm. got a lot of photography in it um I think I get, I should know this, but I think I get like three or four dollars if I sell one or yeah. something, you know? So yeah. They sell it, it retails for twenty six ninety five, and, you know, so like, I have to, so, they, I effectively but, have to sell 20, all 20,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the biggest margin that I've heard of from a company that does all of the distribution and, you know, your commercial book, if you like, is 18%. That's that's the highest percentage. And that's of the, the retail price. Um, or sorry, it's, it's the price that the publisher themselves achieve for the book. So right. when they're going to Amazon, for example, the distributor buys it at X and Amazon sells it at Y. And so actually, you know, they're, they get ten pounds for the book, whereas if they sell it direct, they might get thirty. So the, your eighteen percent changes quite a lot that way. But um, right, yeah, that's the way the book market works. Yeah, so in a lot of ways, if you can take on the financial risk and you think you have a viable way to market it, you have an audience. Self-publishing, while wrought with a lot of potential pitfalls, as I've talked to many photographers about. Um, I do think it is probably economically the one of the better ways to do it. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got you've got to have the stomach for it for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't be the right choice for everybody, but yeah, um, economically it can work out well. I mean, if I sold every book at full price, which which I won't, then it would be just about justifiable as a piece of work, as in I could pay myself for my time. Um, and of course, all that work is done, and I partly supplemented it by running workshops at the same time. Um, cue the angry keyboard warriors, oh, Alex Nail taking his own photos on a photography workshop. But no, I mean, my, my clients have been very gracious with that sort of thing, and that's how I've made these projects possible, really. Um, and I've made that very clear to, to my clients on my trips. So yeah, uh, if, if, you, if you sell everything, it works pretty well. I've 
I've done calendars the last two years, not sold out, made £500 last year <laughs> on my calendar, having shipped 300 of the 500 that I printed. So, you know, you have to be very careful not to get burnt with that kind of stuff. Yeah, no doubt. All right, well, I mean, we could probably talk about this all day, but we're running out of time. Um, who do you recommend for the podcast? Who are some photographers that we've yet to have on the show that you think we need to learn more about? Yeah, I mean, the, the top guy I think to have on now is is Mark Littlejohn. I've done a few trips with him, actually. He lives up in, um, well, in the Northwest Highlands, very close to the Great Wilderness, actually, on the on the edge of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's an ex-police officer who, who now lives a somewhat quiet life up on the, the northwest coast of Scotland. But uh, he's a very interesting guy. He's uh, He's got a great, great personality. He doesn't take himself too seriously. Always a really good laugh. Um, but lots of really interesting opi- um, opinions. And he's actually a, an interesting guy to follow on social media because he posts these uh, diatribes about his everyday life, which are very entertaining, actually, and, and, and posts his own photography along with those. Um, Kenny Muir is uh, another Scottish photographer who's done brilliantly uh, actually in in the competition recently. Um, But he's done a lot of photography in Glen Affric, beautiful Caledonian pine area. Um, I I just think his work is is fantastic, very dedicated photographer. Uh, And and Brian Pollock is, is another guy who did well in the competition who I've known for a few years now and every year his work gets better. In fact, I, I think he's probably producing the best work of the Scottish Highlands at the moment. Just, uh, notwithstanding people whose work I haven't haven't actually seen, but I just did a yeah, amazing. I just did a uh, on landscape article about him. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, so I'm actually uh, let me grab this thing here. Part of my book binding, I've been making a um, a print box of of prints. Um, and Brian's actually got a couple of images in here. I don't know what I've got on top. No, not not one of his. But yeah, uh, when when I was curating my sort of best twenty photos of Scotland from from photographers, I've been doing print swaps. Oh, um, nice! That's smart. Two, yeah, two two of his are in there. He's uh, one of two photographers with two images. So uh, yeah, no, I I do love his work. Yeah, awesome. Well, Alex, this is it's always a pleasure talking to you. I miss our weekly meetings for NLPA, but I'm sure we'll get back into the swing of things here when judging kicks up again. So, Yeah, absolutely. No, it's always always great chatting to you, Matt. And um, yeah, thanks very much for having me on and harping on about uh, my book, which you must buy. And where do people <laughs> buy it? Where can people yeah, find it? Yeah, just through my, through my website, alexnail.com, which is probably going to be the only place I sell it other than a few outlets up in the, in the Northwest Highlands. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and drop me an email if you're in some far flung place where the postage is ridiculous. Or <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, well, thanks again, Alex. Cheers, Matt. Well, thank you to Alex for the great conversation. It has been so much fun getting to know you over the past five years and a true honor to work with you on the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. I can't wait to get a copy of your book and I highly encourage others to purchase Alex's book as well. His dedication to capturing honest photographs of nature is 
highly inspiring to me and being able to trust that every single photograph in the book was captured with this honesty in mind brings me a great deal of joy. If that resonates with you as well, please do help support Alex by, by getting a copy of his book today. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.